Hello, First Baptist Church of Keller family, and welcome to this installment of our Systematic Theology class. Today we're going to look at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, but before we do, uh, let's review a little bit last week. We spent a couple of weeks talking about Christology, which is the branch of theology having to do, obviously, with the work and nature of Jesus Christ. Uh, we, we began with the nature of Christ, and remember some things that uh, we need to have firmly established in our mind, that Jesus uh, took on human flesh at the Incarnation, but he has always existed. He shares all of the attributes of the other two members of the Trinity, the Father and the Spirit. He's the eternal Son of God, but at a point in time, he was conceived in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit, and when he was born, uh, he was born uh, fully human yet fully God. And so remember, he has two natures. He's not part man and part God. He is fully God and fully man. And in his incarnation, he accomplished everything the Father had him to do, namely to seek and save the lost. But in that, he took on three offices that were carryovers from the Old Testament, that of prophet, priest, and king. And as a prophet, he declared the word of God. He is the living word of God. Uh, he interceded, and through his sacrifice, he fulfilled the role of priest. And also, he now rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father as King of kings and Lord of lords. So today, we want to get into the study of the third person of the Trinity, and that is the Holy Spirit. And I will tell you that uh, for many years, we Southern Baptists were sort of hesitant to talk about the Holy Spirit or preach sermons about the Holy Spirit. And the reason is something I always say is that the pendulum swings to extremes. And during the 1970s into the 80s, there was a movement called the Charismatic Movement that infiltrated a lot of Baptist churches and where some, uh, in my opinion, aberrant teaching about the Spirit uh, did great damage to many Southern Baptist churches. And for that reason, uh, for about 20 years, it, you did not hear any preaching about the Holy Spirit because pastors did not want to be associated with the charismatic movement. And that, of course, is a mistake. The Bible has lots to say in both the Old and New Testament about the third person of the Trinity. Well, the first thing we want to say about uh, the study of the Holy Spirit is that it is called, in theological terms, pneumatology, P-N-E-U-M-A, pneuma which is a Greek word meaning wind or spirit. If any of you are mechanics, you probably deal with pneumatic tools, that is wind-powered, air-powered tools. It's a good way to remember. Remember when the Holy Spirit came with power uh, in the book of Acts, there was a the sound of a mighty rushing wind, and that's a good way to remember that. There's a lot of misunderstanding about the Holy Spirit. Sometimes when you hear people referring to the Spirit, they use the indefinite uh, pronoun it, and the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible refers to all three members of the Trinity with masculine pronouns. In fact, you'll want to stick around to the end of the lesson today. We have a special guest, and he and I are going to discuss the concept of God as Father and why we use masculine pronouns to describe all three members of the Trinity. But there are about three primary things that we need to know about the Holy Spirit. Remember, in each of these lessons, we've tried to establish three or four positive statements, and I've called them pegs upon which to hang our theological hat. If you can understand and have a firm grasp of these three or four 
statements and truths about the Spirit, it will help you avoid error. The first thing we want to say about the Spirit is that the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is not a lesser God, little g. He is fully God, just as the Son and the Father are. Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4 speaks of the deity of Christ. Tyler, would you read that text, please? Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4 say, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And so there you have it. The Holy Spirit is altogether God, and therefore it is appropriate for us to worship the Holy Spirit. Um, oftentimes in our Baptist hymnal, we will have hymns uh, which are addressing the, the Spirit uh, personally. Uh, a lot of our hymns speak of the Trinity. In fact, one of our favorite hymns is Holy, 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 which speaks of the deity of all three members of the Trinity. And so we can rightly say a second truth about the Spirit is that the Spirit is a person. Now, how, how do we know and what is the evidence biblically that the Holy Spirit is a person and not just some uh, divine force uh, or power? Well, the Bible, when describing the Holy Spirit, uses personal terms. For example, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 um, indicates that we can grieve the Holy Spirit and... Uh, he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Uh, Tyler, read Luke one thirty-five as we talk about the personhood of the Spirit. Luke chapter 1 verse 35 says, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. There you have there in the very first chapter of Luke, uh, that the Holy Spirit uh, is personal in his relationship with people. Uh, he has a mind, and he intercedes, Romans 8, 27, and he searches hearts, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And so it, it's not correct to refer to the Holy Spirit as an it. It's not correct to refer to the Holy Spirit as some impersonal power or force. He is uh, personal in every regard. And so the Bible uh, uses some names or descriptive phrases uh, to describe the work and the person of the Spirit. Uh, one of those places that we see the personhood of the Spirit is uh, John chapter 14, verse 26. Tyler, will you read that verse, please? John chapter 14, verse 26 says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And so uh, there you have a, a number of titles for the Spirit. He's called the Helper. Remember that Jesus said that, that he was going away, but he would send a, a Helper. Uh, he's called uh, the Comforter. Um, and then his role is to teach uh, the apostles all the things and bring to their remembrance all the things that, that were said to them. And of course, uh, he does that to each Christian in which uh, he, he indwells. Uh, he recalls the word of God that we've studied at appropriate times. Primarily in that text, uh, I think he's speaking of his 
superintendents in the writing of the Bible, particularly the New Testament. And of course, uh, those apostles were the ones primarily tasked with uh, writing down um, the work of Christ and, of course, establishing Christian doctrine through the New Testament canon. And so the Holy Spirit, uh, we say, led those men uh, to remember and to write down the things that Jesus taught them. Oftentimes, uh, we tend to think of the Holy Spirit as a, a New Testament teaching. And of course, we know because God is immutable that he never changes. That certainly must not be the case. And of course, it, it isn't the case. We find the first reference to the Holy Spirit in the very first chapter, the very first book of the Bible, Back Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, speaking of the creation narrative, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And we've said that uh, taking John chapter 1 into consideration, all three members of the Trinity were involved um, at various aspects of the creation. Uh, God the Father is speaking and uh, the worlds came into existence. Uh, the Son uh, was there. The Bible says all things were created by him and through him. And then the Spirit was there hovering over the face of the waters. Um, it's not yet clear, though, in Genesis chapter 1, that the Spirit is a distinct person from the Father and the Son. We see that in, in later Revelation. And by the way, theologians call that progressive revelation. As we move through chronology and history, God gives us more and more light. That is, we know more about God because he has chosen to give us a clearer and fuller revelation of himself. Of course, Hebrews chapter 1, the classic text, says that in former days God has spoken through his prophets in many ways, uh, but now most clearly through uh, the work of his Son. And so uh, we now have the full closed canon of Scripture um, everything God wants us to know about himself, we have in the Bible. Uh, the first person in the Bible that is said to have the spirit within him is the man Joseph in Genesis chapter 41. You remember that Joseph uh, was sold off into slavery by his wicked brothers and eventually found himself in a dungeon but the Lord did not forget him and eventually brought him out of that dungeon and he became second in command of all of uh, Egypt. Um, and so in Genesis chapter 41, Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Now, we don't know how much Pharaoh knew about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, but he understood that there was something different about uh, those who knew the Lord and Joseph fit that bill, of course. Um, Exodus 31, we see the Lord's Spirit filling a prophet to do his work. Um, and I think that's an important distinction. In the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon individual men to empower them for specific deeds. Uh, for example, in Numbers chapter 24, verse 2, says, Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him, and he took up his discourse and said, the oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is open. And that is, uh, for a specific moment in time, the Spirit would come upon people, they would give them revelation, uh, allow them to see into the future sometimes. 
Uh, Nehemiah 9.30 speaks of the Spirit speaking through the prophets. Judges 3.9 and 10, um, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. Uh, that is Othniel, one of the judges of Israel, when he went out to war. Judges 14.6, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. Um, speaking of, of Samson, one of the judges. And so we have a number of those cases in the Old Testament where for a specific moment in time or for a specific task, the Holy Spirit of God would come upon a person to accomplish God's will. Um, also in the Old Testament, the Spirit could come upon someone and, and then be removed from them. We see that in places like 1 Samuel 16 and, and Psalm 51, which says, "'Cast me not away from your presence.'" Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Of course, Psalm 51, that was a plea by David because of his sin of adultery, which led to murder. He asked God not to take his spirit from him. Um, and why, why was it that David would pray a prayer like that? Uh, because he saw it happen. His predecessor, Saul, once had the Holy Spirit upon him. And because of his uh, rebellion and sin, the spirit was removed from him. Um, now, that is a very clear distinction um, in the way that we understand the Holy Spirit today. And we sure, certainly would never say the Spirit has changed his nature, but the Lord uh, works in a different way in the New Covenant through the Spirit than he did in the Old Covenant, primarily this way. In the Old Testament, the Spirit came upon certain people for certain tasks. That is, if the Lord wanted a, some enemies of the Lord defeated in battle, or he was revealing himself for one particular moment in time, uh, the Spirit would come upon certain people. But in the New Testament, our understanding is that when a person is born again, the Holy Spirit dwells in that person permanently. And in fact, we, we talk about the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the New Testament indicates that uh, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit gives us assurance that we are children of God. In fact, the Bible says if we have not the Holy Spirit of God, we are none of His. Of course, there's quite a bit of confusion among certain denominations. There are those who teach that salvation and the infilling of the Holy Spirit are, are two different things, um, that it's possible for a person to have their sins forgiven, but they not have the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we, as uh, uh, Southern Baptists, reject that notion uh, we believe and teach that at the moment of regeneration, the moment of conversion, that God gives us the gift of his Holy Spirit um, to live within us. Now, now speaking of, of how we refer to the, the Holy Spirit, and this will be our last section before we go to our interview today, um, the Holy Spirit of God is referred to with a number of titles and, and different ways, uh, as, as I alluded to earlier. Let me just walk through some of those with you. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, he is called the Spirit of God. Um, he is referred sometimes simply with the abbreviation, the Spirit. Uh, we see that in Acts chapter 8, 29, and the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. He's called the Spirit of the Lord in Judges three ten. He's called the Spirit of Truth in John fourteen seventeen. He's called the Spirit of Jesus in Acts chapter 16, verse 7. He's called the Spirit of Adoption in Romans 8, 15, which says, 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And so I think that's a good segue into our interview today. Well, joining us right now by telephone is Dr. Dax Summerhill. Dr. Summerhill is the pastor of the Providence Village Baptist Church in Lake Butler, Florida. Dr. Summerhill also interned with us here at First Baptist Church of Keller a long time ago. Dr. Summerhill, welcome to the program today. Great to be here with you. Thank you. Well, I appreciate you joining us. This is our systematic theology class, and we have been studying over the last few weeks the doctrine of the Trinity, specifically uh, the doctrine of Christ. And so uh, I want to talk today about the relationship of God the Father and God the Son, and you're the first person that came to my mind because you're a great father. In fact, you're the father of seven. And so I want to talk to you about uh, the concept of God the Father. Can you just give us a five-minute overview of the relationship of God the Father and God the Son and, and their roles, um, not just in creation, but in, in ruling over the universe? Sure. Well, when we talk about the relationship within the persons of the Trinity, I think we want to talk about, first of all, their equality, that when we talk about Father and Son, that the Father is not more God than the Son is, that they possess the same attributes, the same essence, and that they're co-equal, that in their being or in their nature, the Father and the Son are both equally God. But then there is what theologians have said is an economy of the Trinity, and that talks about role or function within the Trinity, so that we see in God's two major activities, creation and redemption, we see God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, all active in creation, and God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, all active in redemption as well. John chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we know that this Word is the one who became flesh. This is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, and that he both is God and is with God. So there's unity and distinction, and that he has made all that has been made. So he, it, Jesus is active in creating. When we go back to Genesis 1, we see God creating the heavens and the earth. We see the earth without form or vo and is void, and darkness is covering the face of the waters, and that the Spirit is then hovering there. And then we see God saying, let there be light, and there's light. So this word that creates light, so we see the word creating light, we see the Spirit who is giving form and structure and filling uh, the darkness, and so we recognize that when it comes to the activity of God, that the Father is kind of the author, and that the Spirit 
is the applier and the son is the accomplisher. We see the same thing in redemption. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, we recognize that God the Father is the one ordaining, predestining, choosing, and that and adopting that the Son is the one that is accomplishing salvation. He's redeeming, forgiving, and that the Spirit is the one who's applying this. When we hear the Word and believe, He seals us, and He guarantees the hope that we have. So that's kind of a simple way to understand the relationship between the three persons there and their roles. We're talking to Dr. Dax Summerhill today, and thank you. That's very helpful. First and foremost, uh, is God male? Well, I think I would answer it both yes and no. As you mentioned, we have these designations that come to us from the Bible that he is a father. He's not called the Heavenly Mother. And that Jesus is God the Son, not God the Daughter. And so he has these designations that are specifically masculine. And as you mentioned, he is universally recognized throughout the Bible with masculine pronouns, he, him, his, not she or it. And that comes talking about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, And have these offices, for instance, that God is a king rather than, let's say, a king, a queen. That would be inappropriate. But I would also say no in the sense that um, we typically relate maleness and femaleness to biology and certain chromosomes or certain anatomy. And God is a spirit. God doesn't have a body like men And so God doesn't have these male or female chromosomes, biological features that we that we might equate with maleness or femaleness. Now, the only caveat I would say to that is that, of course, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh; that He's taken on true humanity, and that when He did, He was distinctly male. He was He was a man. He was born a a boy, and so we recognize that when God came to earth incarnate, incarnate, he was a male in that sense. That's the only thing I would say to that. Uh, Let's turn a little more personal now. As we talk about God as Father, those of us who had uh, good and nurturing fathers growing up, that's a comfort to us. Others that maybe had absentee fathers can't relate as well to that when we talk about god as our father jesus taught us to pray our father who art in heaven um how is god a father to all human beings at the same time uniquely the father to christians well uh paul was talking to the uh athenians on mars hill in Acts 17 and said that we're all god's offspring and so uh, he, he recognized, I think, that we're all created by God, that we all bear the image of God, that we all um, receive good things from God, what's called common grace. Generally, the sun rises on the just and the unjust, and that uh, 
So we see that in one sense, God is, is father to all men, but we see that he's specifically the father of believers, those who have put their trust in Christ, because Christ is the true Son of God, the only begotten, the unique Son of God in a way that you and I cannot be. And so those who have believed in him are united with him by faith and then become his children in that sense. And so the emphasis of the Bible is not on the universal aspect of all the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of all men, as the liberals like to say, but the emphasis is upon believers being uh, true children of God. For Jesus told the Pharisees that they were liars and murderers like their father, the devil, and that in Ephesians 2, it tells us that we're all, by nature, children of wrath. So we recognize that uh, only those who have believed are true children of God, true sons of God. So I've known you a long time, and I know uh, you've shared with me before that you lost your own father at a young age. Uh, how has that experience impacted your understanding of God as our Father and, and your philosophy of, of fathering your own seven children? Well, I think it made me grow up some, uh, made me make my faith my own. Um, it happened about the time when I was about to go off to college, and so instead of that being a time of rebellion, that became a time of revival when I began actually reading the Bible and making my faith my own. I think it made me thankful that I had experienced a, a father like that. So many don't have those kinds of good relationships with their father, and because of that, maybe it skews or negatively affects their relationship with God or the way that they see God and view God. And it helped me, I think, to rely upon the Lord. Um, I see the promises of God in Scripture that he is a father to the fatherless, and I think that maybe that also helped Laurie and me in our desire to adopt children as well. Uh, you've adopted four of your seven children. Um, the doctrine of adoption, which is a topic we're going to cover later on in our section on soteriology, but uh, let's go ahead and jump in there just, just briefly. Tell us just a, a quick definition of the doctrine of adoption and how that has informed your understanding of, of your own adoption. Yes. The, the Lord gives us certain pictures of salvation, and so he takes us to different places. In justification, he takes us into criminal court, and those who were guilty are then declared innocent. In sanctification, we're taken into the temple, and those who are unclean are then declared holy or set apart as holy. And reconciliation, we're taken into um, the battlefield, and those who are enemies of God are then made friends with God. But in adoption, we're taken into family court and... There, those who are orphans, those who are even slaves, are then pronounced free and pronounced sons of God. And whereas in justification we see God as judge, in adoption we see God as father. And so that makes all the difference in the world. I think in granting us assurance of our salvation, because as we recognize 
that God has chosen us in him and predestined us for adoption before the foundation of the world, Ephesians says, that means, as someone says, that that adoption is bigger than the universe, and our adoption is, is before the universe, which means that, as another theologian has said, if God uh, never started loving you, then he can't stop loving you. He never started in the sense that because he loved you before time began. He has chosen us before the foundation of the world in love. And so that's a, a wonderful truth of adoption that we are eternally then secure in the Father once we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, it lets us know that we have an inheritance that's unfading, awaiting us in glory, that we're co-heirs with Christ, that we're united with Christ, the true Son of God, so that we could be real children of God. And I think that's helped me understand a little bit about um, my own... Adopting children has helped me understand a little bit about my own adoption that that just because some of these children are not mine biologically doesn't mean they're less my children they're they're truly my children, and that adoption is just one of two ways to have children and and truly have children, so we're not second class children in that and secondly, I would argue that that when the Father adopts us, that he adopts us both legally and spiritually. And what I mean is that when I adopted my children, I had to go through a legal process. Uh, A couple of them had to pay some serious money and also go through all of this red tape in in order to adopt them. Well, the Lord has purchased us by giving us his son. Christ has redeemed us and paid the price for us so that we might be adopted. But God has not only sent his son, God has also sent his spirit to give us then the spirit of adoption. It's one thing to adopt a child legally. It's another thing for that child to then see you as father. And my children, one thing, one of the ways I, one of the things I love is that when I go home, the children come running. They call me daddy. They call me father. They they love me. When they get hurt, they call out for me. That's one of the ways that we see genuine Christians who are adopted. They recognize God as their father because they have the Holy Spirit to call upon him as father. See, I don't have to show my kids the paperwork to prove to them legally that I'm they belong to me. They've never asked to see it. I can show them that, but they don't need that. And that's that's one of the things, the glorious things about our adoption. That's a great word. Thank you, Dr. Summerhill. Before you go, we always love to pray for our guest and his family, your wife's uh, Lori, and your seven children. Is there any specific way we could pray for your family today? Did just pray for us as we're struggling, like so many churches in the during this. Um, time of self-isolation and not being able to meet together um we're abundantly supplied and 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 blessed but also you know we did have plans to um 
go to India this year and some other places that are up in the air. And so I would ask that you would pray for some of those things. Let's close our class today in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our time together. Uh, Thank you for what we've uh, studied today as we've talked about uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, specifically the relationship of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Lord, we confess these are difficult doctrines, but I pray the prayer of Paul to the church at Ephesus that you would enlighten our hearts and minds, that we would understand the height and breadth and depth of our salvation. Thank you for Dr. Summerhill, who's helped us uh, understand uh, better the doctrine of adoption and the concept of God as Father. We are grateful that uh, Jesus paid the sin debt, that we indeed can come near and draw near with confidence to the throne room because God is indeed our Father and we are his children. We pray, Father, you dismiss us now with your grace. We continue to pray for our fellowship and your protection over it and the health of our members. We pray the same for Providence Village Baptist Church there in Florida, and we pray that you'd continue to use that wonderful church for your glory. We pray specifically for Dr. Summerhill, his wife Lori, and their seven children, Lord, that you'd use them in a marvelous way. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.